Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 38. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and of the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways, and your deeds that, you, that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God, that that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, and they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so, she, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now I'm just going to tell you at the beginning, this is one of my favorite places in Ezekiel. When I preached over the years and on many other topics, many times it'll bring me back to this section, and you're going to see in a little bit why. Here once again, God tells the nation of Israel that He, in the end, is going to forgive their sin and bring them back into their own land. Now I say the word again because God had just through Ezekiel told them of his, his land promises that we studied last time that we were together back in the first part of this chapter. But not only that, he also through Jeremiah had just recently prophesied almost word for word what we just looked at. And I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Now if you remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied around the same time. Jeremiah began before Ezekiel did. And he was preaching in the land of Israel, in, in Judah. And he was dealing with all the stuff going on in the city while it was happening during the siege and everything. He was also in the group that was taken to Egypt. And at the same time, we also see Ezekiel was called to be a prophet after his exile into Babylon. And he spoke to the Jews that were there in Babylon. But they both were prophesying around the same time. Jeremiah slightly ahead of Ezekiel. And in Jeremiah 31, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. 
Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. And the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. All right, now jump over to chapter 31 and look at verses 8 through 11. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. He Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and he has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. Jump down to verse 16. We're going to go through verse 20. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving, and he says, you have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Jump over to verse 31 and look at verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we see here in Ezekiel, when God's prophesying through Ezekiel in chapter 36, verses 22 and following, we see that he's preaching almost word for word what God had been saying to the people of Israel in Judah there through Jeremiah. Now, some of you may have caught it, but there's a lot of similar statements made by both Jeremiah and Ezekiel in these passages that we've just looked at beyond the promises to bring them back to their land. Now, these similar statements show that there will be much more that goes on when God fulfills these promises. And as you've heard me say before, Israel becoming a nation in 1948 cannot be the fulfillment of these promises. These promises are yet to come. It's very easy for us to read the promises of God's going to gather them and bring them back into the land and it's going to become fruitful and all that and to see what's happened since 1948 and think, oh, that's a fulfillment. But as I'm going to take some time to break down and go back over these passages that we just looked at and show you some specifics from them, I want you to see there is, there's some very specific things that God says through Jeremiah and Ezekiel that show that that fulfillment has not happened yet. It can't be, have been fulfilled in 1948. All right, so let's look closely at what God says to Ezekiel and Jeremiah about the days still to come. Here's the first thing I want you to see. On the day that these promises are fulfilled, Israel will be repentant 
and in mourning for their sins as a nation. Look at Ezekiel 36 again. Look at verses 31 and 32. It says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So on the time that this promise is fulfilled and God erases their sin and puts the Spirit in them and all the stuff we're going to look at, at that time Israel is going to be repentant, Israel is going to be in mourning for what they've done, and they're going to regret their sin as a nation. Right now, is that the case of the nation of Israel? No, actually, Israel's proud of the fact that they're a nation again, but because of themselves, because of their heritage, because of their name, Zionism. And what does God say? He says, I'm not going to do this because of you. See, the Israelites right now, the Jews as a nation, think that they're back in the land because of them. We're God's people. We, us, what, you understand what I'm saying? But they don't worship God as a whole, as a nation. Are they seeking God? Are they following? No, they're proud of their heritage. They're not repentant. But the scripture is very clear that when this is fulfilled, Israel will loathe themselves and repent. All right. And as we just saw in Jeremiah, at the end, when this is fulfilled, every single Jew will know the Lord. Every single Jew will know the Lord. Go to Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, look at verses 9 and then verse 9 and then verses 18 and 19. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I'm a father of Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So as the nation of Israel comes back into the land, how are they going to be doing it? Weeping and seeking him or his mercy. Re repentance. Look over at chapter 30, 31 and look at verses 18 and 19. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Isn't that almost word for word what we read in Ezekiel? Where he says, be confounded. Now, you may not know this. Some of you probably do. But Zechariah actually prophesies about this day as well. And he gives us a little bit clearer hint of what they're going to be repenting about. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, look at verses 10 through 14. God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Haddon Ribbon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of, by the, of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Do you see it? When they repent, when Israel turns to the Lord at this time, when he erases their sin and does this awesome blessing of bringing them back into the land and fulfills all these promises, Israel will be repentant 
They'll be weeping as they go back into the land. They'll be seeking His mercy. They'll be confounded and loathe themselves because of their national sin. But also, what else, according to Zechariah, will they be grieving over? Jesus. They'll look on the one whom they pierced, and they'll mourn. Zechariah shows us that at that time, the Jews will believe in Jesus. That hasn't been fulfilled yet. Oh, yes, a miracle has occurred that the nation of Israel has come back into their land and become a nation again in 1948, and we've seen them prosper in lots of cool things. But some of the things that we see here tonight, you're going to see, haven't happened yet. So this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. This is going to happen at the end of the tribulation, the Jews that survive the tribulation period are the only ones that are going to be left, and they're going to be the ones who regret believing in Jesus as the Messiah and are gathered to receive these promises. Now, let me also point out for us that repentance and humility are the gateways that open up the flow of God's grace to our lives. See, we can talk about how at that time, Israel is going to repent of their sin. They're going to realize what they've done. They're going to be sorrowful for it. And they're going to seek His mercy and plead for mercy. And God's going to pour out His grace upon them. He'll give them mercy. He'll give them grace. He'll erase their sin. All these awesome things that are going to happen. But I want you to understand that right now, God's grace and His mercy are available to each of us on a daily basis. I just heard recently David Jeremiah preaching this week on the passage that talked about how his mercies are new every morning. And that word new in the Hebrew means never before experienced. In other words, his mercies are fresh, never before experienced every single day. But how do we receive his mercy and his grace in our daily lives? Through repentance and humility. Well, let me show you. Don't take my word for it. Go to James chapter 4. Again, remember, James is writing to the church here. James chapter 4, starting in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says that God yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm going to keep reading. Put a finger in James. Go with me to Isaiah 63. As I was preaching a couple weeks ago up in, in Virginia, God brought this passage to my understanding. Isaiah 63, look at verse 10. It says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. We don't realize this, folks, but scripturally, we think that when we walk in sin, God just kind of stops his flow of grace. Actually, I don't believe the Bible teaches that that's the case. I believe that his grace is continually flowing in our direction, according to the scriptures. But we shut off the flow. We actually put the hand to God's face, if you will, and say, talk to the hand. And we reject his offer of mercy and grace that's always offered to us. But the scripture also says when we walk in disobedience and we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, that God doesn't just pull back or what he actually will start working against you. Does that sound like fun? 
I think Paul put it this way when he was sharing his testimony for the third time in the end of the book of Acts as he was preaching to this one leader. He tells this story and his testimony of how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and blinded him and knocked him off his horse. And in that version of Paul's testimony, he adds something that we hadn't seen in the other versions. He says that Jesus told him it's hard to kick against the goads. Now, if any of you know anything about Horses, you know that whenever you rode a horse, a lot of times they would wear spurs. What was the purpose of the spur? To get the horse to move. And you were let the horse know you had the bit in its mouth and the bridle and you had the spurs. And yeah, the horse could fight against the bit. And the horse could fight against the spurs. Was it easy? Was it fun? And when Jesus met Paul, he told him at the beginning, um, I'm going to win. You might as well surrender your life to me. Because you become my possession, and it's hard to kick against the goads. I'm going to win. Back to James chapter 4. Look at verse 6 again. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You want the flow of God's grace in your life? Stay repentant. Stay humble. Well, Jim, I don't, I don't think I really need to repent of anything. I think for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty good. I hope there's nobody in this room that feels that way. Because I got a scripture for you if you do. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, look at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him, from God, from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess or agree with God about our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make Him a liar and His word's not in us. I don't know about you folks, but the closer I get to the Lord, the more I realize my sinfulness. See, I used to think that as a young Christian, that the closer I got to the Lord, the less and less I'd sin. The less and less I'd struggle with sin. I kept dreaming of the day that as I got closer and closer to the Lord, that the temptations would fall by the wayside and I would get closer and get into this spiritual realm that you think us preachers all live in. Well, it ain't there. Actually, the longer I walk with the Lord and the closer I get to the Lord, the more time I spend in His Word, the more time I spend in His presence, the more He reveals to me the depth of my sin. The more He shows me how much He has already saved me from. Folks, I know how wretched I am. Now you say, oh, Jim. Well, listen, if I actually told you some of the stuff that goes on in my thought process, none of you would want to listen to me. But don't get uppity on me. If I knew half of the stuff that you guys thought about, I wouldn't even talk to you. <laughs> you need to stay humble, repentant. Oh, let me show you one more. Go to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. By the way, has anybody realized why God's mercies are new every morning? Yeah. <laughs> because our flesh gets up every day. We need them. 
every single day. I've heard so many Christians say, I've had a pretty good week. You haven't been looking in the mirror. You haven't been spending time in the Word. Psalm 66, look at verse 18. It says, if I, Psalm 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would have not have listened. When we hold on to sin, Psalm 66, verse 18, when we treasure sin in our heart, the Lord, well, the Bible says when he talks to, in the book of Peter to husbands and how they're treating their wives, he actually says to them, look, treat your wives the way you're supposed to as the weaker vessel. And then he goes on so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's why when sometimes you feel like your prayers aren't getting past the ceiling, you probably need to stop and do a sin checklist because that's one of the first things. Now, all the time that isn't the case, but it's a very good first place to be and the first place to check. So I want you to understand this. When Israel becomes the nation that God's promising that they're going to be in these promises in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when this promise is fulfilled to bring them from everywhere he scattered them back into their land and how they're all going to worship him, they're going to do it in repentance and it's not going to be because they're Jews. It's because of his namesake. And they're going to do it with repentance. And we need to live a life of continual acknowledgement of our need of his grace. Now, there's a second thing I want to go back and pull out from Ezekiel and Jeremiah. On the day that these prophecies are fulfilled, the Bible says that God will cleanse the remnant of Israel of all their sins and declare them righteous and remember their sins no more. Go to Ezekiel 36 and look at verse 33. Ezekiel 36, verse 33 says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, then he goes on and fulfills the rest of the promise about he's going to have the, the cities to be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. But on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Go to Jeremiah 31 and look at verse 34. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. But there's more. Don't just stop there. There's a third thing in this pa these passages that I want you to see. Not only will God forgive the nation of Israel of Israel's sin, but He's going to put His Spirit within them, and He's going to move them to obey His commandments. Again, back to Ezekiel 36. Look at verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Back to Jeremiah 31. Look at verses 31 through 34 again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You can't say this is the church. This is house of Israel. And he makes sure that you were clear and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And like we just saw, no one will have to teach anybody because they're all going to know him. All, every individual that, that's a Jew at that time will know the Lord. Now, has anybody seen it yet? These new covenant promises that are still future for Israel are ours now as Gentiles in the church age. Don't miss this. He's made three promises that I want you to get. Because I think most Christians know of the first two, but very few Christians fully understand the third one. He's made three promises. The first one is this. He's going to erase their sin, cleanse them from all their iniquity. The second one is this. He's going to put his spirit within them. And the third is, he's going to cause them to obey his commands. He's going to write his law on their hearts. He's going to move them to be obedient. Now, if you ask most Christians, of those three promises, which ones are ours now, most Christians would say the first two. That he's erased our sin. If we ask you, has he erased your sin? Well, as far as the east is from the west. Good. Has he put his spirit within you? The Bible says so. He's put his spirit within me. Good. Is he now causing you to obey his commands? And most Christians would say, ah, that's not something I experienced. They're ignoring conviction. They're ignoring a lot of things. And so as Peter, not Peter, Paul pointed out in Ephesians, which we will get to some of the passages, the first thing he started praying was when he heard of their faith in their Lord Jesus and their love for each other, he began to pray that their eyes would be opened that they'd have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would know God better and that they would understand the hope to which he's called us, a glorious inheritance in the saints and his amazing power for us who believe. And then he went on to say that's the same power he used to raise Jesus from the dead. Paul's prayer was, now that I heard of your faith and your love for each other, here's what I want you to, I'm praying for you, that you all would understand what now is available to you because Christ is in you. And so what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to take you to some scriptures that illustrate these three promises how what God's going to do for Israel, again, what are the three things? He's going to erase their what? He's going to erase their sin. He's going to put what? His spirit within them. And the third thing is he's going to cause them to obey him. He's going to make them obey him. All those promises are ours right now. And you only, I want you to see that the Bible teaches that God has, through the church, granted these promises to us, as you're going to see in a little bit, to make Israel jealous. So let's just do a little study here. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. How does it apply when Paul says, I do what I don't want to do? And... Who will give me victory, he then says. Praise be to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ. The struggle will still be there. But as you're going to see, scripturally, the victory will happen when we learn that it's not me trying harder. It's believing that Jesus will do it. And we're going to get to that. Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verses uh, 1 through 12. Now Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, we're going to get to that where he already had written briefly in just a second, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed uh, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, members of the same body with who? With Israel. 
with Israel, as you're going to see, all right? The fact that Gentiles would be saved is not the mystery that had been revealed. All through the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets would talk about how Christ would be a light to the Gentiles. Simeon himself, when he saw Jesus in the temple and as a baby, and he went up and he prophesied, he even said, His gonna, this child's going to be a light to the Gentiles. The fact that God would save Gentiles wasn't the mystery that was revealed. The mystery that was now being revealed in the church age, that Paul had been given this revelation, and that he was being used to share, was that these Gentiles would not only be saved, they would be equal with the Jews, co-heirs. And all the promises that God made Israel are going to be the Gentiles. Keep reading. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. All right, now jump over to chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's Gentiles versus Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and preached to those who were near. For through him we both, Jews and Gentile, have access as in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you remember when we studied Revelation that when the new Jerusalem comes down in the eternal kingdom, in the eternal state, the, the gates and the foundations were made up of the twelve apostles, the church, and the twelve tribes. The Jew and the Gentile were together brought together forever and ever and ever. And that was God's plan. So what I want you to see is this. In this section here in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul says, let me tell you a mystery, something that hadn't been revealed in the previous times, something that God's revealing now through the apostles and through the Holy Spirit and the prophets. The Gentiles are co-heirs with Israel and partakers of all the promises. Have we not just read some promises tonight in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and following? I'm going to erase your sin I'm going to cleanse you from all your sin, put my spirit within you, and I'm going to move you to follow his decrees. Therefore, those promises are ours right now. And now, let me show you another one. Go to Colossians chapter 1. You're in Ephesians, jump over two books to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 25 through 29. Now we're jumping in the middle of a, <coughs> excuse me, of a sentence of Paul's, but that's almost impossible not to do because Paul was the master of the run-on sentence. 
Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, there's that word again, something that hadn't been revealed in the past, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that? And let me tell you something. There's a mystery here that's being revealed. You Gentiles have Christ in you now. What the Jews are going to get? No, any Jew that gets saved today, part of the church, going to be raptured when the church is raptured. But the nation as a whole still is, as you're about to see a little bit, and we look at that passage a bit, is still in a hardened heart state. They haven't really responded as a nation. One day, as we already saw tonight, they all will. The ones that are left, the remnant, are all going to know the Lord. But right now, for God's purposes, He's saving Gentiles and giving us those same promises. All right? Here we see that He's going to put Christ in us. All right? Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, another one of Paul's master, masterfully written run-on sentences. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now this will be easier to understand if we take out the descriptive words in the middle and read it again. All right, so we're going to take out who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. All right, so now read with me verse 16, jumping over that section to verse 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Does that sound familiar? May God establish you in every good work and word. Folks, you want to know how to let the Spirit of God that's within you take control so that you're able to forgive when you don't want to forgive? Where you're able to give mercy when you don't want to give mercy? You want to be able to let the Spirit of God actually cause you to obey His commandments? Colossians 2.6 says it this way, In the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. Now, you all have no problem with how you received Jesus as Lord, right? How did you receive Jesus as Lord? By faith. In other words, you heard the message of salvation, how if you believe that what you did was separating you from God and that God had provided for your sin by His own way through His own Son, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross for you over 2,000 years ago, was crucified on your behalf, rose from the dead by His own power, and He'll give you eternal life if you just will believe. Sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? But you, by faith, said, sign me up for that. Lord Jesus, I need it. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you. I can't make myself right. Therefore, I ask you to give me this salvation. Give me this eternal life. By the way, what happened when that happened? He did. And there isn't a person here that's saved that doesn't understand. All I did was believe what he said, and he said he would do it, and I believe he'd do it. And you know you're saved. In the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, you walk in him. What did Paul say? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life I live, I live by faith in him. Folks, you want to have God establish you in every good work and word? 
hear the message, believe it's true, ask Him to do it, and watch. It happens. Lord, you said you would establish me in every good work and word. I need it. I can't live the Christian life. I've tried. You've all heard my testimony. How even being quote-unquote successful in ministry, I didn't understand this thing called joy. I didn't understand this thing called peace. I was busting my fanny. I knew I was going to heaven. I knew I was going to heaven. I knew I was saved. But I had no joy. I had no peace. Until finally God said, are you tired of living the Christian life on your own strength? Yes, I am. And he began to teach me how to believe that God would finish what he started, that he's the author and the perfecter of my faith. He's the one who began the good work, and he will finish it. And he began to show me these scriptures. Let me show you another one. Jump down to chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. That sounds kind of bold. Look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He doesn't say you need to love God more and you need to be more patient or more perseverant. What does he say? May God direct your heart to loving God more and may God direct your heart to the perseverance of Christ. Most of us grew under, up under preaching that said you can't save yourself, only God can do it. And we understood that and we said, yeah, you're right. But then the preacher said, now that you're saved, here's how you're to live your life. You need to be more patient. You need to be more kind. You need to be more loving. You need to go out and live the Christian life for the Lord. How's that worked out for you? Pretty miserable, isn't it? We were never taught that the promises that Israel is going to get in the future, which are very clear, that he'll erase their sin put his spirit within them, and cause them to obey his commands are ours today. And that's why Paul prayed what I quoted to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14 and following. My prayer is that you have the eyes of your hearts open now to all that is available to you through Christ Jesus in you, the power that's available to you. Folks, when I stopped trying to get better as a Christian, I got better. When I started believing that God would do it, he's making those changes in me. My wife will even tell you, I went out and we didn't feed it today, and she didn't even have to beg me. Now, i got to be honest with you. I don't like cutting the grass. I don't like weeding and feeding. And I w cut the grass yesterday. But I also noticed as I was cutting the grass that oh, we need to weed and feed. Came in from cutting the grass, and I said to Becky, we need to go to Lowe's, and we need to buy some weed and feed. And while we're at it, we need to buy another extension cord because I ran over yours uh, just now with a lawnmower. <laughs> she was out there putting lights on a palm tree and everything like we do here in Florida. And I didn't see the extension cord, and... We need a new extension cord. So we come back with this big old bag of weed and feed, and I'm like, oh, when are we going to do this? And, of course, you want to do it when it's about to get moist and all this stuff, and you don't want it to burn your grass. And so I put it in the back of my car and thought, oh, I'll get to it. But i got to be honest with you, folks. This afternoon when it was my nap time, God spoke to my heart and showed me the sky. I pulled up on my phone the hourly, and I realized it's going to rain just in a little bit here. Now's the time to put the weed and feed. Did my flesh want to put the weed and feed? No, I was in my jammies. By the way, I did the weed and feed in my pajamas. My neighbors love it. My neighbors love it, I'm sure. But I sensed the Lord say, do it. And he changed my heart. He changed my want to. I actually wanted to. 
I actually did a good job instead of a lazy job or a quick job. And wouldn't you know that the moment I stopped weeding feeding, guess what happened? It rained. My wife comes running out. She goes, look at you. Yeah. Hey, do you believe that God has erased your sin and given you eternal life? Do you believe that he's put his spirit within you? Do you believe he will cause you to obey his command? Then ask him. On a daily basis, ask him and believe it and watch the change that begins to take place. You won't even have to advertise it like I just did. All right. Go to Romans chapter 11. This salvation for the Gentiles, folks, this salvation for the Gentiles time period will come to a close. And then God will fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. This is something that a lot of people haven't fully understood. Even though he's taken Jew and Gentile and right now making one new man in Christ. And the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's mostly Gentiles. Very few Jews. But there are some Jews being saved. But at the same time, the Bible clearly states that there will come a time when the time of the Gentiles will come to an end. And God will then pick up where he left off with the nation of Israel. And that's going to be during the tribulation period, which we're going to be taken out of, out of here before then. But listen to Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 16. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Talking to the Jews, by the way. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Jump down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Oh, there's that word again. Something that hadn't been fully revealed in the past, but it's now being revealed. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Again, all Israel, what's included in all Israel? 
the Jews that survive. Remember? Remember we just read in Jeremiah? All of them will know me from the least to the greatest. But if you remember your study of Revelation, when the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. One-third is going to be left. One-sixth or one-half of them is going to run out into the wilderness. The other half is going to still be in Israel, in, in, in Jerusalem. It is the Jews that survive to the very end. What did Jesus say to the Jews in Matthew 24? And he who stands firm to the end will be saved. All of Israel that survives the tribulation period will be saved. Now, I want to help you out for a quick second. I had a question asked me via email from a lady in Mississippi. And she said she was struggling with understanding when Jesus was talking about the rapture and his teachings in the Gospels and when he was talking about the second coming and all this stuff, especially in Matthew 24, when he talks about two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. And as I was starting to write back to her, I knew that the answer was too long to send an email. And so I knew her number and I called her up and I said, let me just give you the short answer but it's still longer than I would want to type. But the first mistake that you're making is that you're assuming that Jesus was teaching about the rapture in Matthew 24 when he says, two will be in the field, one take another. For years, we've always seen that as the rapture. But you got to keep in mind two things. One, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, brothers, let me tell you a mystery. There's that word again, something that hasn't been revealed in the past, but now is being revealed. Let me tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed in a moment and twinkling in the eye. So when Paul started teaching there about the rapture, he said, this is something that hasn't been revealed yet. Therefore, Jesus could not have been teaching about the rapture if it hadn't been revealed to when Paul was revealing it. And secondly, who was Jesus sent to? He himself said it over and over. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The teaching of Jesus in the Gospels are things we should study and learn and know from because those truths apply to us in the church age. We don't chuck the Gospels, but you got to keep in mind, when Jesus showed up the first time, he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Even when he sent his disciples out two by two, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't even go to the Samaritans, go to the lost sheep of Israel only. He was teaching the Jews, offering them the kingdom, knowing they were going to reject it and reject him, but it all fit into God's awesome plan. And in Matthew 24, if you look at his teaching in Matthew 24, it's not to the church. It's to the Jews. Well, that's why he says, pray that your flight when the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple doesn't happen on a Sabbath. Not something he'd say to the church, because we're not under Sabbath regulations. He also says, pray that your flight doesn't take place in winter. Again, not something he'd say to the church, because in the church is across the whole globe, and it's winter somewhere at all times. In the same way, I want you to understand, that's why the Bible teaches that Jesus was teaching the Jews in Matthew 24. We have a tendency sometimes to try to read the church into everything. And that's not the case. Now, after his resurrection from the dead, in the beginning of the church age, he began to teach the apostles for 40 days about the kingdom and all this stuff. But even then, their reaction was, you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? <laughs> so as we look at this and as we deal with Romans, keep in mind, when it says all Israel is going to be saved, it's talking about the ones at the end of the tribulation period. And that's why Jesus said, and he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He was talking to the Jews. He was talking to the Jews. And Matthew 24 will make a whole lot more sense to you if you realize Jesus was teaching the Jews. You say, wait a minute, Jim. Okay, I'm with you so far. But you haven't explained Matthew 24, verses 41 and following, where he says two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Keep in mind the context. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah... 
Two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. In the days of Noah, when God brought the judgment on the world, who was taken, who was left? The unbelievers were taken. The ones left were the righteous. Did you catch it? We flipped it around. Actually, if you study that Greek word that is taken, it actually has a picture of being taken for judgment. At the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah and the judgment of the flood. The ones taken are going to be the ones who are taken in judgment. The ones left are going to be the ones who are allowed to populate the millennial kingdom, the righteous. It all becomes so much more clear when you understand who was he talking to. All right, so Paul says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You notice how Paul's writing this in the New Testament like it's still future? Because it is still future for the Jews as a nation. Now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So is God done with the nation of Israel? Not at all. But he's doing something right now called the church age where he's saving Jews and Gentiles together, mostly Gentiles, for the purpose of making Israel jealous. Now write this down. I don't have time to get to it tonight because there's something I want to close with. Write this down. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Read the whole chapter. Deuteronomy 32. You're gonna, I want you to slowly just read the whole chapter. What's awesome is it's a song of Moses, and he's given this song by God to sing to the people so that they would know it. You ever notice how certain songs stick with you and you can remember things if they're in a song form? God gave Moses a song that he was to sing to the people of Israel so they would remember it. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy 32, you're going to find that God describes their whole history as a nation from beginning to the end in that whole one song. He tells them how it's all going to play out, how they're going to turn from him, how he's going to send these plagues, how he's going to reject them from the land, all this stuff. He even says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, you're going to go after other gods that aren't gods to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people that you don't consider a people to make you jealous. That's us. But then by the end of the chapter, around verse 21, sorry, uh, around, sorry, actually it's around verse 36, chapter 32, verse 36, you're going to see his promise of what he's going to do in the last days and how he's going to bring them back. So that's for another time. Now, there's one last thing I want to pull out from Ezekiel 36 tonight that we have to look at tonight. I want you to see this. Don't miss this. When these promises are fulfilled, the surrounding nations will know that Jehovah is the Lord. Though he is the one who has done all that he has for and in Israel. Look at Ezekiel 36 again. Look at verses 22 Again, and following, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name, which was pro been profaned among the nations and which, among which you have profaned them. 
and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Do you see it? When, Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, jump down to verse uh, 36. Then the nations that are left, do you see it? The nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. Let me ask you, those of you who have been following your history, knowing what's going on in the world right now, do the nations around Israel believe that God's God? Well, they've believed it since 1948, right? No. Israel's been fighting for their lives ever since they became a nation in 1948. They've had wars and rockets and all these things happening. There's always that threat of another one. Folks, the nations that are surrounding Israel at the time these are promises are fulfilled will all know that he is the Lord. I'm going to give you a little hint to where we're going in chapter 38 and 39. Go to chapter 38, verse 23. The whole Gog and Magog stuff. I can't wait to show you all this. There's been so much misunderstanding about Gog and Magog. I Hopefully you'll see in time how clear it becomes. Ezekiel 38, look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 39, look at verses 7 and 8. And my holy name, which I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel, Behold, it's coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God, that is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires. Sorry, I read too far. Verses 7 and 8, you see, again, he's going to take Israel, and he's going to make his name known in the nations around, and they're going to know he's the Lord. One more, chapter 39, verses 21 through 29. Ezekiel 39, verses 21 through 29. And I will set my glory among the nations... And all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole houses of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and assembled them into their own land and I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. When this happens, and it has not happened yet, all the nations around will know that he's the Lord. Now, look closely at what he says. I'm the one that scattered them to all these nations. And all the nations to which I've scattered them when I bring them out and back into their land, will then know that I am the Lord. I don't want you to miss this as we close tonight. God, in His punishment of Israel, in His judgment on them for their sin, had them go through some really horrific stuff as a people. We've, 
We could take the time tonight to talk about all that the Jews have been through in their history and all the nations that they've gone to, let alone the Holocaust. But God says, I'm going to take what I sent as judgment and I'm going to turn it into a blessing because the Jews will have been scattered to all these nations and all these nations will know they have Jews in them. And when I bring the Jews out and bring them back, all the nations will watch what I do. And God says, I sometimes, because of disobedience, send judgment. But when you humble yourself and you repent, I can even take the messes that have happened because of your sin and turn them into my glory. Do you all know who uh, built the temple? The first one. Remember, David wanted to build one, but God said you can't. Does anybody know who Solomon's mama was? Bathsheba. Don't, don't miss that. What David did with Bathsheba was horrible. It was sin. He committed adultery. Then he tried to cover up his sin, tried to make that guy go back and sleep with his wife because there wasn't DNA testing back then, and he thought he could get away with it. The guy wouldn't do it. So then he gets him drunk thinking he'll stumble home and sleep with his wife and cover up his sin. The guy wouldn't do it. So David has him killed. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife, and God comes to him through the prophet Nathan and says, because you've done this in the sight of the nations, that child that's been born to you that you conceived is going to die. And David wept. He sought God's forgiveness. He sought repentance. And God came to him and said, I've forgiven your sin. The child's still going to die. There's consequences for your sin. But the child is going to die. But I've forgiven you. And the Bible says that when he found out that the child was dead, he got up, he dressed himself, he had a bath, he had a meal. And you can go double check me. The scripture clearly says he then went and lay with his wife Bathsheba and comforted her. And she conceived and gave birth to a son. And they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon. Did you hear that? All these years we've been taught if you're a divorce, man. No. God hates divorce. It ruins the beautiful picture he's trying to picture of the Christ in his church and the relationship that will never be broken. But it doesn't matter what we've done if we're willing to humble ourselves and say, God, I sinned. God, forgive me. It was wrong. God will sometimes say, I'm not going to take away the scars, but I'll take what you give me now and turn it into something glorious. Yes, the Jews have been scattered and still are scattered amongst the nations. And they're a mockery to many people. But when this day comes, all those places where they've been scattered are now going to be watching when he brings them back for his glory. He will take your messes and turn them into glory if you'll give them to him. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks.